Welcome, welcome, welcome to Real Talk with NMAC. I'm your host for this afternoon. My name is Darnell Green, and I have one of our very own, very great and prolific program managers, Terrell Parker. Hey, Darnell. Good afternoon. What's up? What's up? So today we're going to have Terrell on. We're going to have just a great casual conversation on stigma, HIV, and sex. I feel like we can go ahead and wrap those three things into one and have a good combo. What do you think? Yes, I think it's an important conversation to have. You know, if you're going to be in Vegas for our biomedical summit, the conversation and the topic is all about sex. So I'm a pretty sex positive person. So let's talk about it. What, what, what? So y'all heard him say that our theme this year for biomedical is let's talk about sex. So Terrell, I know you just came across your two year journey. Am I not mistaken? Let's let's dive into that. How does it feel to be two years in? So I'm almost at my two year, you know, what some people call a seroversary, which is the day that I've learned um, that I was a person living with HIV. So my two year anniversary is April 13th, 2023 will be my two year anniversary. April 20th, 2023 will also be my two year anniversary of taking antiretroviral um, medication. So if you don't know me or like my story or my journey, I've been working in the HIV workforce for well over, shoot, I want to say almost 10, over 10 years, going on 15, somewhere in between that. You know, the years all run together, especially since COVID. I had always been doing this work because I have a passion for helping people in my community, not necessarily because I was personally connected to it as a person living with HIV. So it has been an interesting journey now that I am a person living with HIV. Um, being on the other side of things has definitely given me a, I would say, a different or a new perspective on just understanding stigma, understanding what it's actually like to be a person living with HIV after disclosure status. Because before, like working at IMAC, one of my many jobs working in the workforce was to be a clear counselor or what they used to call CRCS, which stands for Comprehensive Risk Counseling Services, which is basically all about working with people living with HIV, helping them to understand their diagnosis. But the goal of that program is really to help them to not transmit HIV to someone else, to, you know, help them understand that you equals you, undetectable equals untransmittable. What does that mean? Also, what does it mean to negotiate, have conversations with the people that you have sex with? So one thing I always tell people is I think I used to underestimate what it was like to have the disclosure status, because keep in mind, I was a person not living with HIV, trying to educate other people on how to disclose their status. You know, when I would say things that are very cliche, you know, using you equals you, you know, it is a very powerful tool, but it is still kind of cliche in some ways. I'm also saying things like, oh, you you can be happy and healthy and not transmit the virus to somebody else. You just got to be empowered to like have that conversation with people versus like being faced with the reality of, okay, I got a confirmed diagnosis. I'm now a person living with HIV. I got a 3 million viral load. I don't want to tell anybody. I don't even really want to have sex. Um, I'm just afraid. So 
that was my initial stage after learning my HIV diagnosis was just coming to that realization like, wow, for the rest of my life, this is something that I have to do. And it was very interesting sitting across the seat from people and trying to counsel people and tell them what it's like to disclose your status versus now being in the seat myself and really realizing how difficult it can be, even if you're educated, even if you got the knowledge, even if you're undetectable, it can still be challenging. So I would say that was one of the differences that I first noticed um, when I learned about my HIV diagnosis, my HIV status. Okay, okay. So, you know, that I always, you know, we always have these great conversations. I'm sex positive as well. And I've slept with multiple guys who are HIV positive and things of that nature. But or living with HIV. Oh, living with HIV. Positive anymore. Yes, I'm so sorry. Living with HIV. And it's it's become a challenge because a lot of those fellas, I actually didn't know their status before. What are you doing in your everyday life to ensure that before encounters with someone, you allow them to fully understand everything about your HIV status? So one thing that has helped me is that I'm open about my status. I talk about my status on social media. So that has kind of removed or eliminated some of the pressure. And also I just talk about it like openly in public as well. So that kind of removes, at least for me, it removes some of the stigma because it is very hard and it is very challenging to share your status with someone else. And I'm a realist person. Like I understand that sometimes we, we have sex for different reasons. Sometimes you'll have sex when you're in a committed relationship. Sometimes you'll have sex with a casual partner. Sometimes you'll just have sex with somebody that you hook up with on a random night because you want to have sex. And you, have, as an adult, you have the right to do that. So what happens if you want to hook up with somebody very randomly? You know, there's certain things that go through your head. Do I share with this person? Am I ready to disclose? Will they reject me? You know, not only will they reject me, but if I tell them, is my personal health information, you know, is my business going to be confidential? Will they keep it between us or will they then go around and tell other people? You know, so stigma is very real. Sometimes stigma can be perceived, it can be anticipated, or it can also be actual stigma, meaning, you know, you tell somebody your status or that you're living with HIV and then they blast you on social media. That happens. Sometimes it's perceived. Sometimes it's just the fear of putting yourself in that position and being vulnerable and being rejected. Um, I would say for me, it's much easier because I am public about my st- about living with HIV, because I'm public about living with HIV, I'm kind of like, I mean, at this point, it's public knowledge. If you know, you're going to find out if you scroll through my social media anyway. So I might as well just tell you, have a conversation about it. But even then, it was still an adjustment period for me. Um, Because for me, I'm not going to lie. I'm going to be honest. What I initially said was, I'm going to become undetectable because I know undetectable means untransmittable. So I'm not going to be able to transmit the virus to anyone else. I'm just not going to tell anybody because if I'm undetectable, if I'm untransmittable, why do I even got to tell anybody? What's their business to know? There's literally no way that I can transmit the virus. And that is something that is so common right now. Like I have a few friends and we always joke and key about it and they make that comment. And I always ask myself, why is that not okay? I know, yes, society, the world, there's laws that you have to tell anyone that you have HIV, but if you're undetectable and untransmittable, why are you having to tell those people? You know, it's kind of like a double standard almost. I think it is. 
Are they one definitely legally? You want to protect yourself because there are some states where you live in. Um, HIV criminalization laws are real. So if you do not disclose your status to your sex partners prior to having sex, that can be a criminal offense. So I do think it is important for especially people living with HIV to know the laws within their local state so that you don't potentially put yourself at risk for being a victim of unfair HIV criminalization laws. So, but I also think that for me, I often have this conversation with people who are friends and I say, maybe I'm in a privileged space because of who I am. But I can say, I always say this, that we live in the post-COVID sex revolution. What I mean by that, I um, acquired HIV during the COVID-19 pandemic. I was one of those people, you know, that you hear about um, during the pandemic when HIV and STI rates increased because people were at home, people were having a lot of sex. I was one of those people that was having a lot of sex. Unapologetically, that's my story. Um, And I acquired HIV during COVID as a result. So I think that things have definitely changed. We're in the, what I say, we're in the middle of the post-COVID sex revolution, you know, because we've seen the rise of OnlyFans. We've seen people just really, in my opinion, being more comfortable with sex and being open with their sexuality than they have in the past. So for me, I always tell people, I haven't gotten denied for sex since I've been living with HIV. I've had more sex as a person living with HIV in the two years than I ever did when I was, you know, when I wasn't living with HIV. I always tell people out of all the people that I've had sex with, one person rejected me. And that one person said that they knew what it was because, you know, I was having this conversation with them. It was a hookup and I was telling them undetectable do you know what that means? They say, yes, they know what that means, but they just didn't feel comfortable having sex with someone, you know, you know, that was living with HIV, even if the person was undetectable because they knew about it, but they didn't really know that much about it. And they just didn't feel comfortable, you know? And like I told them, I said, that's fine. You have every right. I'm not upset. I'm not offended. This is me personally. It's like I told them, I probably got five other people that I can call right now. I'll tell them I'm personally what HIV and they're going to say that we can come over. And that's literally been my response. So sometimes, so you know, stigma is very real and I don't want to downplay it and say that it's not, but I think that my story kind of represents some of the progress that we've made because we have educated more people on what it means to be undetectable. We have worked to get more people on PrEP. So I think that from my experiences, it seems like stigma is kind of decreasing but what I also say is that we still got more work to do and like we gotta continuously do work like in the new generations because the new generations are coming up and they don't have access necessarily to the same information that we've had for years now that we're you know millennials we're in our late 20s our early 30s like we still have to make sure that we're providing that information to the young people because they don't have it and I know that they don't have information because I sometimes sit, like I, I'm around a lot of young people that are like 18, 19, 20, 21, that are coming into their sexual prime. You know, they're coming into their bodies. They're starting to have sex. They're exploring things. And I hear some of the conversations that they have around HIV, and it's very much rooted in a lot of stigma. It's very much rooted in a lot of misinformation or lack of information. Um, some of the language that they use is very stigmatizing. 
I was at a party one day and I was around a group of young people and they were just talking about taking a trip to a city in the South. And they were talking about how they don't want to go in the city in the South because that city is perceived to have a large number of people with HIV. And they were saying, I'm not going down there because I don't want to come back and get that. I don't even want to use the word because it's stigmatizing. But it was a derogatory word for like HIV. And then, you know, in the middle of the conversation, I was like, well, you know, why y'all say that about HIV? And they were like, oh. then they kind of started giving their reasons about how they're afraid and, you know, and then I said, well, you know, I'm a person living with HIV. And then they were like, their jaws just dropped. And then one person even asked me, they were like, well, why would you say that in public? Why would you say that in front of a room full of people that you barely know? And I was like, well, why wouldn't I? It's nothing that I'm ashamed of. And it's also important for me to show young people that you can be living with HIV. All those negative things that people say aren't true and they don't have to be a reality for people living with HIV. Ooh, that was a lot. I like that. You made some points in that statement. And I, I really, really want to go back to the first one about hooking up. So do you think that if the stigma around a hookup wasn't so derogatory or negative that more people would actually be more vocal and open about their hookups? I think it's not even about hookups overall. I think it's about sex in general. I would say if there was less stigma and there was more honesty around sex and pleasure and what people find to be pleasurable, then I think that then you can have more honest conversations. But I think it's just so much. I mean, I'm, I'm going to go on an extreme here. This is a sex, but this is just how much some of these things are kind of perpetuated, like in the media. For example, there's been this meme going around that says, if you're a heterosexual black man, you should not be smoking hookah. <laughs> With my feminine if you energy. you smoke hookah, then you shouldn't be posting it on social media. It has nothing to do with the fact that hookah is like smoking so many more cigarettes. It has nothing to do with the fact that it's unhealthy for you. It has to do with if you smoke hookah and you post it on social media, the perception is that you're gay. And I think that is like, just indicative sometimes of like the level of like social control that we're under sometimes that we really don't realize. It's like, who says that you don't have the freedom to smoke hookah and blow it out your mouth on social media? So if we're that stigmatized around someone smoking and it being an implication on their sexuality, then imagine you can't have a real conversation with the straight man that likes to be pegged. You can't have a conversation with a heterosexual couple who may like to invite a third person into their bedroom. That may be a man, that may be a woman, that may be both. But there's so much stigma around sex overall that we can't be honest with each other about what we enjoy, what we find pleasurable. And that really determines the type of sex that we have. And ultimately, the type of sex that we have determines our vulnerability or our likeliness for acquiring HIV or STIs. So if we can't have an honest conversation about sex, about pleasure, about what gives us joy and satisfaction, then we can't have an honest conversation about what we're actually doing. And if we don't have an actual conversation about what we're doing, then we can't get real about what's the best method for us to protect ourselves and for us to remain um, sexually healthy. See, that's sexually healthy. I like the way that you said that. And, you know, there was another point you made that stuck with me, too, is when you told the guy that 
there's five other people that you could call right now that would have sex with you. It's something about being self-aware. You have to be self-aware and have a self-confidence and growth within yourself to also understand that HIV, what you're encountering, it's not a that sentence. It's not something's wrong with you. It's your identity. It's something to become proud of, something to brag on. And I know maybe your answer may be coming from the work, but how did you become so confident? Like, how did you become so strong and transparent, I'll say? Definitely the work. And I feel like I've been doing anti-stigma work way before Escalate. Um, and I always tell this story about how when I first started working in the HIV workforce, one of my friends, or actually a guy I was dating, he came to me and he said, you know, Terrell, um, one of my friends, I think, is living with HIV. And I think he's not in care. And I really want to talk to him. And I really want him to know that, like, you know, we're here for him and that we want him to get help. But I don't know what to do. And then I remember the conversation I had with him. This was probably about over 10 years ago at this point. The conversation I had with him was, what are you doing to create an atmosphere and an environment where your friend will feel comfortable disclosing your status or talking to you? Because at the time, my friends were using very stigmatizing, degrading language towards people living with HIV. And I had to check all of my friends and I had to say, you know, that's not the type of language that I want y'all to use around me anymore. And here's why. And then also to that friend, I gave him that advice. And I said, you need to tell all of your friends that same thing. Because I sit up and I hear how y'all talk about people living with HIV. And at the time, I wasn't living with HIV. But I said, if I was living with HIV, I wouldn't want to share my status with y'all based on how y'all talk about people who are like me. I said, so you never know who's in the room. So I think part of it was definitely because of the work. I think I had already laid the foundation for the people, everybody in my life knew that if they were around me, there were certain things. If you talk about gay people, if you talk about trans people, if you talk about people living with HIV, you can leave that at the door or don't come around me. So I think I had already created a culture or a climate environment around me that was really supportive. So that when I did learn my status or my diagnosis, um, the first day I called my best friend, Sean, I called my godmom, Marissa, I called my good friend, Lauren, that I worked with. I called my manager at the time, Charles. Um, I called Paul Kawada the first day and told him, which was a surprise. Uh, I told someone who was working on the project, her name is Alexis. Um, um, and I told one other person. And so I think like my first day, I probably told about seven or eight people which is an anomaly because once again, my first job working in Lincoln, my first job in HIV was Lincolnshire Care. So I work with people. As soon as they learned that they had a reactive test, they had to meet with me. I had to get them linked to care and go into action mode, you know? So I work with so many people who I was the only person that they had told. I work with so many people who are also not engaged in care and they had never told anyone in their personal lives about them living with HIV. So I already knew on day one the fact that I had seven or eight people that were knowledgeable about HIV. Oh, and I got to shout out my friend Jonathan. I can't forget him either. I knew people that were knowledgeable about HIV, people who were supportive, people who were going to listen, people who weren't going to judge me, people who weren't going to freak out, people who weren't going to ask and make one questions, people who just wanted to make sure that I was okay and to make sure that I was going to take care of myself and to make sure that I was going to 
remain healthy. So I think that is probably one of the biggest reasons to this day why I feel comfortable. And then the last thing I would say is definitely escalate working for a program that's anti-stigma, that focuses on helping people live with HIV to be empowered, that focuses on helping people to understand how to disclose and talk about living with HIV and being in a room full of trainers and facilitators on day one, and they're like, I'm living with HIV. And what a lot of people don't realize is during the development of Escalate, um, when we were writing the curriculum, putting together the work plan, all that good stuff that goes into before we launch a program, I got really sick and I thought I was going to die. My CD4 count had dropped to like 230, so I was very close to an advanced HIV diagnosis. My viral load was over 3 million, and I had only been living with HIV for like 60 days. So within 60 days, like my health deteriorated and declined very badly. I had HIV. I was diagnosed with mono. I was diagnosed with chlamydia, and I had... um like a ear infection or something, all at the same time. Um, my body had broken out into rashes. I had rashes all over my body. I was on so many medication. I was on medication for HIV. I was on antibiotics. I was on a cream for my face, a cream for my body. Um, just in like going through so much. And then I learned my HIV diagnosis and all of this was right in the middle of me leading this program about stigma. And I've been keeping that secret. Like I had told, once again, my close network and my circle, but I'm doing this work and I'm talking about reducing stigma and I'm talking about the power of disclosure and I'm living with HIV and I haven't disclosed myself. So I felt like Escalate was really a catalyst for me in the right time to be able to say, I'm a person living with HIV too. And that was very powerful for me. The first time I said it publicly was on a Zoom call with the Escalate team and the Escalate trainers. And then they just empowered me and they showered, showered me with so much love. And they said, welcome to the club. And then they made me feel like it was not something that I had to be ashamed of or embarrassed about because there was a great deal of like bashing that I did on towards myself, you know, saying that I knew better, I had the knowledge, I had the information, this shouldn't happen to me. And they just all really made me feel like I was a part of a I was a part of a a, a unique group and I didn't have anything to be embarrassed or to be ashamed about. And then I would say probably about a year after that, well, a year to the day of me starting my antiretroviral medication, I chose to come out publicly or to share my status publicly with the world. That wasn't a part of my plan. I said I was going to wait about 20, 30 years, maybe after I have my big break like Billy Porter, and then say, boom, I could live with HIV all this time and y'all never knew it. But going back to what I said earlier about seeing young people or hearing the language that they use and not seeing an example of somebody living with HIV that's open about their status or open about their diagnosis, I felt like that was the reason why, because there's very few examples. And like in my local community, there are even less examples. There are elders 
in our community that are living with HIV are open about their status. But I really couldn't think of too many people that were my age that were open about their status. But I know a lot of people, but not a lot of people are open about it. And I just think that also contributes to the stigma. And I say everybody doesn't have to take the national platform. Everybody doesn't have to share it on social media. But I do believe that there's power and there's breaking down the stigma. Because, I mean, people see me every day. And, I, uh, you know, I walk in a room with power, with confidence. I feel good. I look good. I smell good. I dress good. And I'm living with HIV. And that's an afterthought most of the time. I do realize that that's a privilege. But I also realize that there's power in representation. And there's power in representing that HIV didn't slow me down. HIV didn't stop me. I got better. People literally tell me that. People tell me, you've grown so much since uh, the HIV. You were you were already dope before, but since this happened, you just blossomed on a whole new level. I never thought that I would say that because I always thought it was like cliche when people live with HIV said it. I do think it's true. And I think somebody needs to see it. And I think somebody needs to hear it because there's probably somebody living with HIV right now who's not in care that needs to be in care because life is good on the other side. But you got to live to see it. Always say that life is good on the other side, but you have to live to see the other side. That's a very, very true statement. So this whole thing of people living with HIV not being in care, that's a stigma there. Is it more stigmatizing because of the facilities that these people are attending or are people trying to get their services from? Or is it more stigmatizing because they just don't want to be known to be living with HIV, period? I would say that there are multiple reasons why people are not engaged in care. It definitely has to do with stigma. I always tell the story about when I first started working in Lincolnshire Care, I was at a hospital taking one of my clients to an appointment, sitting in the waiting room. Someone that I knew walked into the clinic for their appointment. They saw me sitting there and then they walked out because they knew I was somebody from the community and they didn't want somebody else seeing them walk into the clinic because the assumption is you walk into that space, you're personally with HIV. And once again, going back to what we talked about earlier, whether stigma is real, whether it's perceived or anticipated, you know, based on the very real things that have happened in the past, whether that be mistrust from organizations in our community that we have to get honest with, violating confidentiality and trust that has happened in the past, or whether it's just the fear of, you know, going on social media and seeing other people bash for their, uh, for being a person with HIV. That perceived status was, I saw somebody in my community who knows a lot of the people that I know. I don't know if I can trust this person. I would rather leave my medical appointment than risk this person seeing me going in and them potentially telling somebody else that they saw me at this appointment. That's real. And that happens. That's real. And that happens. Um, so some people just don't want to go into a place that has been labeled or identified as an HIV um, service provider. No, so that's a lot of the work we do with Escalate. How do you find that right balance between providing services to the community and not necessarily being labeled or branded as just the HIV service provider? Because that potentially can be a barrier for someone coming in um, on receiving services. We also know that life happens um, for a lot of people. I'm working with, you know, a lot. I work with a lot of people who experience housing crisis housing deficiency, 
unstable housing, transitional housing, people who are unhoused. It's really hard to focus on going to the doctor and taking your medicine if you don't have a roof over your head. Um, so, you know, so all of those, what we call those social determinants of health, you know, housing, food insecurities, can you pay for your medication? All those things also play a factor as to why people are not engaged in care. But stigma definitely plays a role as well. You know, you, you don't know how many people I worked with in the past and said they just wanted to forget about it. And they didn't go to the doctors because it was out of sight, out of mind until they physically felt ill. So that happens. But then on the other side of it, we're trying to end the HIV epidemic by 2030. And that's very real. So on one side, you have a lot of the challenges. Then on the other side, you have this goal of trying to end the HIV epidemic by 2030. But I always say you can't end the HIV epidemic if you don't end stigma because, you know, we can talk about providing resources and services to people. But at the end of the day, if folks are afraid to go to the doctor because of how they're treated when they go to the doctor, because they don't want to be seen walking into the doctor, then that's just going to make, you know, our jobs more difficult. Um, and I wish that everybody had the same experience as me. I wish that everyone felt confident, had the support, was empowered to share and be open with the world. But it was so many people who, in my own community, after I shared my diagnosis, came up to me and thanked me. And these were people that I know for years. And they said, Terrell, how did you do it? I've been living with HIV for years. I still haven't felt comfortable. I still haven't told anybody in my family, how did you do it? And I tell everybody, it's a personal journey. You got to do it on your own time, when the timing is right for you. But I also realize that I'm in a privileged space because the resources, the information, people that I have is really, really amazing because we know what causes stigma. Stigma is caused by two things. It's caused from a lack of information and it's caused by fear. And that's what leads to stigma. And fortunately for me, I have a lot of information and I've already empowered people in my life to support me and not be afraid of HIV. So I do realize that I, that I come from a very privileged space, but it is possible. It is possible. I know people, you know, who maybe didn't work in the HIV workforce, but found support in a support group or maybe amongst friends or key family members. And they were able to slowly over time you know, share with their family or share with the world. You know, everybody doesn't need to have a national platform. Everybody doesn't need to be the advocate. Sometimes all the people who need to know are the people who are in your family. And that's okay, too. Whatever's right for you. So, Terrell, if you could have a conversation with young Terrell, five-year-old Terrell, 10-year-old Terrell today, what would you tell them? Wow, that's a really great question. I'm glad you decided to ask it. Um, I'll, I'll tell a story about the first time I, I ever heard about HIV. So the first time I ever heard about HIV, and I hope I don't get in trouble for telling this story because it's a family story. You know how families are with their stories. So y'all just got to follow me. So my grandmother, her sister, who is my great aunt, she was married to one of the Jones brothers. So if you're from Indianapolis, you're familiar with the Jones brothers because there were four of them. They owned a popular barbecue chain. Their father um, owned four barbecue heavens, and he left one barbecue heaven to each of his sons. 
Um, so my aunt married one of the sons. So that's my uncle. But one of his brothers, one of the sons who was left at barbecue heaven, he actually died of HIV because he was a, a gay man who died of complications of HIV. I think like in the early, in like the height of the epidemic, like the 80s, 90s, I never remember meeting him. I just always remember this story about HIV. So that was our family's story and that was our family's connection to HIV. And whatever I knew about Whenever I heard about HIV, it was always this disease. I would see it on TV because I grew up in the 90s. And then my personal connection was, you know, my uncle's brother died from complications of HIV. So I remember the first time the first time I saw a person living with HIV, and I cannot remember her name, but Darnell, if you can remember her name and maybe give her a shout out. Um, she's around my age. She, I believe she's a vertical, a person who was born living with HIV um, from mother-to-child transmission. She was a little Black girl, and she was on, I believe it was like one of the talk shows in the 90s. It was like the Maury Show or like Sally Sally Jesse Raphael, and she was talking about HIV. And at the time, which was in the 90s, they were preparing for her to die. And I saw this young woman at USCHA in Puerto Rico. And then I went up and I spoke to her and I talked to her and I said, you're the first time I ever heard about HIV. I was like, really, like learning about HIV was from her. So to follow her journey and to see her still being like living and in her 30s. So like what I would tell myself is like this big scary thing called HIV, like that's going to be a part of your life. You're going to be one of the many people who have fought this thing, but you're going to have the privilege to be born in a time where there's medication, where you will have access, and where you will live. And I would tell myself that this big old scary thing called HIV is going to give you even more purpose than what you thought you had in life. That's what I would tell myself. Terrell, that was monumental. That was moving me. Almost made me cry a little bit, just not no lie. That was deep. I think you might have been talking about Portia, but I could be wrong. Yes, I can't remember her name. You know who she is. She's the, she's like the black girl. Like she was on all the shows, like talking about her living with HIV. I can't think of her name. I, I think it is Portia, but I could be wrong. Terrell gave y'all the breakdown. That was real talk with Impact. My name is Darnell Green. I'm live with Terrell Parker. See you guys soon. <laughs> 